Imagine you live in New Orleans, specifically in the Iberville community, next to the French Quarter, where you get a front row seat to Mardi Gras and all the fun of Bourbon Street. If you live in that neighborhood, your life expectancy is around 55 years. Now, if you had a friend, maybe a professor at Xavier University, let's say, who lived three miles away in the Girttown neighborhood, their life expectancy would be 71 years, 16 years longer than yours. Or maybe your friend lives up in Navarre, next to beautiful City Park. Their life expectancy would be 80 years. That's a 25-year difference and just a three or four-mile walk away. The disparities in life outcomes and quality of life between neighborhoods exist in cities across the country, not just in New Orleans. In season one of This Is Community, we explored how the neighborhood where you grow up has a long-term impact on the opportunities available to you throughout your life. But it's impossible to overstate the extent to which neighborhoods around the country are living with the consequences of racially motivated decisions made throughout our history. If we want to be part of the solution of building healthy communities, we cannot ignore how we got here and the role that institutional racism has played in creating bad conditions that lead to bad outcomes for people who've been historically oppressed by those systems. Racism has not only segregated and isolated communities of color from the American dream, racially motivated policies of discrimination have real life consequences on the health and wellness of Americans. Shorter lifespans, inadequate and unsafe housing, limited access to mortgages, limited access to quality and affordable medical care, and the effects continue to compound over time, generation to generation. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with purpose-built communities. In this episode, we hear about the intersection of institutional racism, inequality, and health from Dr. David Williams, professor of public health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health as well as a professor of African and American studies and sociology at Harvard University. He is internationally recognized as a leading social scientist focused on social influences on health, and his research has enhanced our collective understanding of the complex ways in which race, racism, socioeconomic status, stress, health behaviors, and religious involvement can affect physical and mental health. Throughout his session, he references a PowerPoint presentation, which you can find along with more information on our website at purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcast. Here now is Dr. David Williams. I am a huge fan of purpose-built communities. In almost every talk I give, I talk about purpose-built communities because I want to tell you that even though I focus on health, the work that you all are doing in your communities, you are all intervening on health. Because by improving the places where people live, learn, work, play, and worship, 
we are actually improving health in very fundamental ways. But let me jump into my talk today and try to give you some background of what are the health challenges we face and why the work that you are doing is so important to improving America's health. There is a global phenomenon around the world. And it's true in every society where we have data that in what I call race-conscious societies, where there are groups that differ on racial ethnic status, and some are viewed as historically uh, more positively than others, race matters for health. That's true whether you look at Canada, the United Kingdom, um, Brazil, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, race matters for health in very profound ways. And I'm going to illustrate that with just one example, life expectancy at birth, looking at the Maori in New Zealand, Aboriginals in Australia, um, First Nation on reservations in Canada, or Native Americans served by the Indian Health Service in the United States. And in New Zealand, in Canada, and the United States, you can see the indigenous populations live on average seven years shorter than the white population, and in Australia, the gap is three times larger. Just an illustration of how race matters for health in very different countries, with different histories, it is profoundly matters for health. Give you an ex another example from the United States. This is national data for the United States, life expectancy at birth from 1950 to 2010. And there's good news and bad news in the data. The good news is you can see in 1950, African Americans lived on average eight years shorter lives than whites did. And by 2010, the gap has been cut to four years. So we've made progress. It's half the size that it was. But a four-year gap in life expectancy is very large. If we froze the life expectancy of whites and had a life expectancy of African Americans increase at the average rate at which life expectancy has increased in the US for the last 10 years, it will take about 30 years to close this four-year gap in life expectancy. In fact, look at the data. Look at the life expectancy of whites in 1950, 69.1 years at birth. And let's ask, how long did it take for African Americans to achieve the level of health that whites had in 1950? It was not until 1990, 40 years later, that African Americans experienced the health that whites had in 1950. How do we make sense of these racial inequalities in health? So I'm going to focus on race as a lens to understand the racial inequalities in health in the United States. I think you really can't understand the inequalities in health without understanding the house that racism built. And what do I mean? I view racism as an ideology of inferiority that has institutional and cultural dimensions that shapes and reshapes other social institutions within our society and ultimately affects health. What is racism? I think of it as primarily a system, a system based on the fact, the ideology that some groups are more <clears throat> valued than others, and it devalues and disempowers and differentially allocates resources to groups that are regarded as inferior. So the ideology of racism is important, and then it often leads to prejudice and stereotypes and discrimination that then have consequences for health. I'm going to walk you through systematically how these things all play out in terms of health. When we think of racism, 
we have to distinguish between what I would call individual discrimination and institutional discrimination. And I want to give you an example of both. This is a study done at Portland State University in 2014. And it's an example of one area in which discrimination exists in society. And that is in crossing the street. What they did, they took three African-American males and three white males, dressed them similarly, and put them at intersections in Portland to use the same strategy to cross the street. And what they found was that cars were more likely to stop for whites when they stood at a crosswalk to cross the street than for African-Americans. So that African-Americans actually had to wait longer to cross the street. An example of discrimination in an area of life we never thought it might even exist. But that's individual discrimination. That's what one driver did as someone was waiting to cross the street. Here's an example of institutional discrimination. In the last presidential elections, African Americans and other minorities actually waited longer to vote. You can see how many minutes on average, this is from the Cooperative Congressional Election Study, people waited to vote in the United States. There was no individual discrimination here. This reflected primarily place. Where were people voting? And what resources were available in particular places that affected how long it took to, to vote? So it had to do with the budget allocations in particular places, the space constraints, how many precinct workers were available, how many places to vote were there for the population, a number of institutional mechanisms, but the bottom line is institutional, individual, minorities still waited longer to vote. So you can see it can lead to differential outcomes, some of them driven by individual behavior, some of them driven by institutional behavior. One of the most powerful mechanisms of institutional discrimination in the United States that no one talks about is residential segregation by race. It's a powerful driver. The forced removal uh, and relocation of indigenous peoples would also fall into that category. The institutional geographic isolation in space that leads some places to have much more opportunity and much more living conditions that support health than others is a powerful institutional mechanism. I am not unique in talking about how important residential segregation is. Myrtle said it back in 1944 that it was basic to understanding racial inequality in America. John Sell was a historian at Duke University. He wrote a book about the origins of segregation in the US South and South Africa. And he argued that residential segregation by race was actually one of the single most successful domestic policies of the 20th century in the United States. Why? Because it's beneath the radar screen. No one in this presidential election is talking about residential segregation. But everybody's talking about creating more opportunity, but no one is talking about segregation. He argues it's beneath the radar screen but it has powerful effects that shapes access to opportunity in American society. And you say, but what does segregation have to do with anything? Well, stop and think, as you well know, that where you live determines where you go to school, determines the quality of education, determines your preparation for higher education, determines your access to 
uh, employment opportunities. It determines your neighborhood and housing conditions. It determines whether it's easy or difficult to live a healthy lifestyle in your neighborhood. And research shows it actually even determines access to high quality medical care. So place is a powerful driver of health. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's commission has been creating maps of cities and showing how life expectancy varies by which neighborhood you live in. And I picked one example, there are many. Um, and this is the metropolitan New Orleans area. And you can see life expectancy in one neighborhood is 55 years and in another one is 80 years. So a 25 difference in the metropolitan New Orleans area, simply by which neighborhood you live in, you, some people live 25 years longer than other people in the same metropolitan area. In fact, segregation has produced such inequality in America that two of America's leading sociologists, William Julius Wilson and Robert Sampson, after studying the 171 largest cities in the United States, says there's not even one city where whites live under equal conditions to blacks and that the worst urban context in which whites reside is considerably better than the average context of black communities. And in fact, segregation is the secret source in the United States that drives even the inequality in socioeconomic status, income, education, occupational status, and wealth that we see in the United States. Um, David Cutler, he's an uh, economist at Harvard University, uh, a leading economist in this country, did a study looking at blacks and whites in the United States, making it in the labor force, and using fancy statistical techniques I cannot even fully describe, he was able to document that if you could isolate and eliminate residential segregation in America, you would completely erase black-white differences in income, education, and unemployment, and reduce black-white differences in single motherhoods by two-thirds. All of that driven by place and the opportunities for success linked to the community and neighborhood in which you reside. So if we wanted a magic bullet to change inequality, we need to get to the bedrock of what the work you are doing of making a difference in places and creating opportunity in places. What is the magnitude of the inequalities that exist in the United States today by race? This is a 2014 report from the United States Census. And I've put it in, in, in ways that you can't miss the point. For every dollar of household income that white households have, Asian households have a dollar and 15 cents. It's important to contextualize that data by understanding that Asians is a group heavily made up of immigrants. 70% of Asians in the US are immigrants. They have the highest level of education of any group. Most Asian groups have twice the level of education, of college completion, for example, compared to whites. Asians also have more persons in the household contributing to income. So if I did a per person measure of income, whites would have the highest level of income. But for every dollar of income white households have, Latino households have 70 cents, Native American households 60 cents, and African Americans households 59 cents. That's much larger inequality than most of my students think there is in America. Not only that, what is striking about this 59 cents for African Americans, it is identical to the racial gap in income in 1978. You heard me right. 
1978, black households in America earned 59 cents for every dollar white households earn. And in 2013, African-American households earned 59 cents for every dollar white households earn. We've not made as much progress as most people think. And even the data on income understates the degree of racial and economic inequality in the United States. We have to look at data on wealth. Income tells us about the flow of resources into the households, your, your salaries, and, and any other sources of money that is uh, coming in on a regular basis. Wealth tells us about the economic reserves, the assets that households have to cushion shortfalls of income. The major source of wealth for the average American household is home equity. And back in 2011, the latest report from the census, for every dollar of wealth that white households have, Latino households have seven pennies, and African-American households have six pennies. The racial gap in wealth is wider today than it was when President Obama took office. Because during the economic downturn and the housing crisis, minorities, African-Americans, and Latinos disproportionately lost homes and lost home equity. Importantly, one of the things I'm saying uh, is that the large racial ethnic differences in economic circumstances which ultimately affect health are not random events. They didn't just happen. They actually reflect the successful implementation of social policy. And we need to think of the innovations that we are doing that can make a difference to transform uh, these realities that exist. Why is socioeconomic status so important? Because around the world, in every country of the world where we have data, the strongest predictor of variation in health is socioeconomic status. Income, education, occupational status predicts health in countries that have national health care services and in countries that don't. It's the most powerful predictor of variation in health. I'm trained as a sociologist, and I learned that socioeconomic status is a powerful predictor of everything that's desirable in society. And I want to give you one example. Take the SAT score, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, that many observers are now calling the Student Affluence Test because of the powerful relationship between SAT scores and family income. This is 2014 data for the United States. This is family income here and the SAT score. And as family income increases, from less than $20,000 or less to more than $200,000, you see a straight line increase in SAT score. Really powerful relationship of what does SAT score really capture? Capture what individuals have been exposed to, which is powerfully linked to the economic resources that households have. What is true of the SAT score is also true of health. This is national data for the United States. This is overall death rates, overall um, all-cause mortality by family income. Low-income Americans have a death rate that is three times higher than high-income Americans. And it's not just the poor are doing badly. Every higher level of income is associated with a lower risk of death. These are relative risks, so this is three times higher. Even middle-income Americans have a death rate that is twice as high as that of 
Americans with incomes over $115,000. The powerful relationship I'm illustrating between socioeconomic status and health. When I started my career a long time ago, researchers believed that the racial differences in health in the United States was simply a function of racial differences in income, education, and occupational status. That health, the racial differences in health, was just about socioeconomic status. We now know that life is more complex, that there is socioeconomic status that drives health, but there's something else about race that matters profoundly. And I want to illustrate that with national data for the United States. So this is life expectancy at age 25 for blacks and whites. So at age 25, the average white person lives five years longer than the average African-American person. So there's a five-year gap in life expectancy overall. However, if we look within whites, between whites who have not finished high school and whites with a college degree or more education, there is a 6.4-year gap, actually bigger than the black-white gap is the gap by education or income within the white population. The same is true within the African-American population. This is the life expectancy of, of African-Americans who have not finished high school, and African-Americans with a college degree, 5.3 year gap. So that's really powerful to realize. There's something about income and education that drives health for everybody, irrespective of your race. But what the research also shows, there's something else about race that matters. So follow with me the gap in health between African-American high school dropouts and white high school dropouts. White high school dropouts at age 25 still live 3.1 years longer than African-American high school dropouts. And if we look among the college educated, the gap is even larger with a 4.2-year gap between whites with a college degree or more education and African-Americans with a college degree or more education. In fact, I'm going to show you something quite stunning in these data, and it's this, that blacks with a college degree or more education, they're doing the best among African-Americans. They have shorter life expectancy than whites who have finished high school. This is national data for the United States, so it's not a sample. It's all deaths in the United States in a given year. And it tells us the complexity of the inequalities we're dealing with. There's something about income and education that matters for everyone's health in this country, irrespective of your race. But there's something else about race that still matters profoundly for health. And over the last two decades, I've been trying to understand what else is it about race that matters for health, and how does that play out for health? Could racism be a critical missing piece of the puzzle that actually matters for health? So we talked about segregation, place. What do we know about individual discrimination? Well, we know that discrimination is pervasive in American society. That I showed you there's discrimination even crossing the street elegant, carefully executed research. And research shows in so many domains of life, discrimination matters profoundly in getting a job, in renting an apartment, in hailing a taxi, in being suspended for preschool, in the cost of bail, and all of these are elegantly done. I could give an hour's talk just on this slide and describe the various studies that show the nature and persistence of discrimination in American society. Well, some of the experiences of discrimination that occur, people are aware of. 
And how does it make someone feel when they've been discriminated against? We now have research documenting that discrimination is a kind of toxic stress that literally adversely affects health and is killing people in the United States and other countries. So let me illustrate that with one measure of discrimination. This doesn't capture all of discrimination. It just captures some minor dimensions of discrimination. It's a scale that I developed uh, about 20 years ago. I'd ask people how often I treated with less courtesy and respect than others. How often you receive poorer service than others in restaurants or stores? How often do people act as if they're afraid of you? Or if they think you are dishonest? And I just want to show you uh, Dr. Tenney Lewis, who was at Yale University. Every line of this study represents a different, of this slide, sorry, represents a different study she's done linking discrimination, this measure, everyday discrimination, to a specific outcome. So in one study, she finds that everyday discrimination predicts more rapid development. People who have been exposed to it, who have had those experiences, you follow them over five years. The subclinical development of coronary heart disease as measured, not by what they said and not by how they feel, but you actually assess the calcification of the arteries. You measure this. Discrimination is leading to heart disease. Another study, discrimination leads to higher levels of inflammation. Higher inflammation puts you at risk for all the major chronic diseases we worry about. Higher discrimination links to higher blood pressure. Higher discrimination among women who are pregnant, they give birth to lower birth weight infants. Another study finds elderly who report discrimination followed over five years, more rapid declines in cognitive functioning over time. A study of community residents, high discrimination links to poorer sleep. A study of the elderly followed over time, discrimination is an independent risk factor for death. High discrimination, you die more rapidly. Another study of African American and white women, high discrimination is linked to the bad kind of abdominal fat, we call it visceral fat. It's the deep fat in between your body organs that puts you at higher risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease, discrimination is linked to higher levels of visceral fat. To measure visceral fat, we actually need to do imaging data to look at the deep fat in between the body organs. So just this line is an illustration of the negative impact that discrimination has on health. We now have studies from the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa that documents that discrimination makes an incremental contribution over and above income and education in shaping the health of disadvantaged racial groups. So the science is very clear, and it's, it's stunning to see how powerful the effects of discrimination. I'm going to show you the work of Gene Brody um, from, at Emory University from a study he's been doing looking at African-American adolescents um, in Georgia. And what he looked at in this study is the discrimination these kids reported when they were 16, 17, and 18. And then at age 20, they looked to see physiologically where those kids are. By looking at drawing blood and urine samples and looking at their cortisol levels, that's a stress hormone, their epinephrine and norepinephrine levels, systolic and diastolic blood pressure, um, CRP, that's the measure of inflammation from a blood sample, Kids who reported high levels of discrimination as a teenager 
at age 20, their biological functioning is altered and they are less healthy at age 20. So we are seeing negative effects of discrimination even in 20, physiological effects. We see negative mental health effects in seven and eight year olds. But in 20 year olds, we documented biologically their function has been altered as a result of discrimination. It's stunning, the negative effects of discrimination. I'm not gonna make a political statement, but I want you to realize <laughs> that what is happening in our larger environment is adversely impacting the health of a lot of Americans. Let me give you some context. In the wake of September 11th, there was a well-documented level of increased harassment and discrimination against Arab Americans in the United States. A researcher from the state of, uh, used data from the state of California where she could identify from the birth, and, and birth certificates the women who were of Arab American ancestry. And what she did was very sneaky and smart. She looked at birth outcomes for all women by race ethnicity for the six months before September 11, and then compared that to their birth outcomes the six months after. The six months after was when we know Arab American women were on the high levels of discrimination. And what she found for Arab American women only, in the six months after September 11, they're more likely to give birth to low birth weight infants and infants who were preterm born compared to the six months before. The same was not true for black women, white women, Native American women, Asian women, Latina women, only Arab American women, the group experienced discrimination. It was not only affecting their mental health, it was actually affecting their unborn. And babies born low birth weight and preterm have more problems in childhood and more health problems in adulthood. So the hostility in the larger environment was literally affecting their health. The Southern Poverty Law Center has done a study of 2,000 kindergarten through 12th grade teachers in the United States. They asked those teachers, how is the current presidential campaign affecting the kids, America's children, grades K through 12? 67% of the teachers report that their students express concerns or fears about what might happen to their family after the election. More than half of the teachers report increases in uncivil political discourse in their classroom. More than a third have seen increase in anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant sentiment in their classroom. More than 50% of the teachers say that students, others, some students are emboldened to use slurs, in name calling and say bigoted and hostile things about minorities, immigrants, and Muslims. I wanna give you a few examples of what some teachers said. A middle school teacher with a large population of African-American Muslims said, my students are terrified of Donald Trump. They think that if he's elected, all black people will get sent back to Africa. An elementary school teacher in Virginia said, my students are crying in the classroom and having meltdowns at home. A kindergarten teacher in Tennessee 
says there is a student in her class that every day asks her, is the wall here yet? Because other students, other classmates have told him he will be deported and trapped behind a wall. So a kindergarten kid worried about the wall. A K through teacher, K through three teacher in Oregon says, my black students are concerned for their safety because of what they see on TV at Trump rallies. A high school teacher in North Carolina says, I have Latino students who carry their birth certificates and social security cards to school because they are afraid they will be deported. I believe if we had data, we would find elevated cortisol levels in America's kids. We'll find elevated levels of symptoms of mental health problems in America's kids. Um, and this is they are scared, they are stressed, they need support and assurance from the teachers. What I'm saying, what the everyday discrimination scale says and what the research is showing us, how we relate to each other and how we treat each other literally matters for health. We can be agents promoting health or agents promoting illness just by how we relate to one another on a daily basis. What the research also shows, we've talked about segregation, we've talked about individual discrimination. The research also tells us that there are negative stereotypes built into our culture and they affect our behavior sometimes in ways that we don't understand or we don't even intend. Here is a study, still unpublished, we did with funding from the Kellogg Foundation, a national study of adults who um, treat kids, who, who work with kids in the United States. And 52% of white adults report that they believe that blacks are violence prone, and 43% believe that to be true of Latinos, 29% believe that to be true of American Indians and Arab Americans, 22% of whites also believe that whites are violence prone. What you see here, though, is a much higher level of violence-prone uh, behavior that is attributed um, to African Americans. And you ask the question, where do these negative stereotypes come from? Are the people who have these stereotypes bad people? I would argue they're not bad people. Why? Follow me for a second here. A group of researchers have created a project. It's called the Beagle Project. They've put in one database the books, magazines, newspaper articles that an average college-educated American would read over their lifetime. What's brilliant about this is if you've put American culture in a database, you can now look within American culture and say, well, when the word black appears in American culture, what adjective tends to go along with it? Poor, violent, religious, lazy, cheerful, dangerous. Those are the most frequently co-occurring words that go along when black appears in this large database of American culture. For comparison, when white appears, wealthy, progressive, conventional, stubborn, successful, educated, for the fun of it, when female appears, distant, warm, gentle, passive, male, dominant, leader, logical, strong. <laughs> the 
These are the 10 most common stereotypes for blacks and whites. The, this number is the closer it is to one, the more tightly these two things occur, the more frequently. So you see for, for African Americans, even the stereotypes that occur uh, are, are more strongly, it means they co-occur much more frequently. What does that mean? It means that when a cop looks at a black male and assumes that he's violent and dangerous and overreacts because of his perceived danger, I would argue that this is not fundamentally a bad cop. I would argue that this is a normal American who is reflecting what he has seen, how he has been socialized, what his culture has provided him. Because those attributes of violence and dangerousness is what someone sees coin occurring together with black and with black males as a result of being raised in American society. These negative stereotypes research shows are deeply embedded in our lives and shape the behavior of everyone. Give you two quick examples of how it shapes behavior in very different arenas of American society. This is a book published in 2003 by the Institute of Medicine. That's the highest independent medical authority in the United States. I served on the 16-person committee that prepared this report. The United States Congress asked the Institute of Medicine to answer a very simple question. When blacks and other minorities enter healthcare settings in the United States, does their race or ethnicity make a difference with how they are treated, the quality and intensity of care they get? And what we found was across virtually every therapeutic intervention in the United States, from the most simple procedures, a patient with a mild stroke comes into the emergency room, does he or she get an aspirin? If you're a minority, you're less likely to get an aspirin. To the most sophisticated medical procedures, blacks and other minorities receive poorer quality care. I want to give you one example. Dr. Todd was an emergency room physician at UCLA Medical Center. He asked a very simple question. When a patient comes into the emergency room with a long bone fracture, that's medical speak for a broken bone in the arm or leg, okay, patient with a broken bone, does the patient's ethnicity determine whether the patient gets pain medication or not? And he found that 56% of Latinos with a broken bone at UCLA emergency room in the prior year received no pain medication compared to 26% of whites. He was a good researcher. He said it might be something else. So statistically adjusted for the age of the patient, did they speak English or Spanish? Did they get injured on the job? What time they showed up at the emergency room? How long they spent in the emergency room? Virtually every other factor, the severity of the fracture. The single biggest predictor statistically in multivariate analyses of what determines a patient getting pain was the patient being Latino. Dr. Todd moved from UCLA to Emory University in Atlanta, repeated the same study in Atlanta, looking at black and white patients, found exactly the same thing. Now folks, don't focus on pain medication and on pain. This has been documented, i just give you one example. This has been documented in every area of medicine and it's left us with a question, how is it possible 
in a country like the United States with the best trained medical workforce, when providers do not wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to, how can I get my minority patients today? They wake, get up and say, I'm going to do my best for all of my patients. How is it possible that we can still produce a pattern of care that is so discriminatory? Very simple. For 40 years, social psychologists have been studying a phenomenon called implicit bias, unconscious discrimination, unthinking discrimination. And what that research shows, when you hold a negative stereotype about a group, any group, this is not about Americans, this is not about race, race is only important because of the history of racial stereotyping in this country, but I tell my students I'm a prejudiced person. Why? Because I'm a normal human being. If you are a normal human being, you're prejudiced. I'm not saying you're racially prejudiced. Because every society, every community has in-groups and out-groups, has groups that are viewed more positively and groups that are viewed more negatively. And when you meet someone from a group that based on your socialization was viewed negatively, the research says it's automatic and it's unconscious. You will treat that person differently. That is, you will discriminate against that person automatically and unconsciously. You didn't even know you did it. Now, there is discrimination that is conscious, but I'm talking about what we think is even more common is this implicit unconscious discrimination. All it takes to do it is what's in your subconscious. How quickly are these um, things estimated? Research reveals that faster than it takes to blink your eye, in one third of the time it takes to blink your eye, when you meet someone, you make a judgment of what group they belong to and do you have positive or negative associations about that group. It's a normal human process. And let me just say here, let me emphasize the point, it's not just about race. Because I may not have racial stereotypes, but if I have negative stereotypes about gay people, about fat people, about old people, about women, about people who live in a particular neighborhood, the same processes operate. They are normal human processes. I want to give you another quick example of how common this is. Study out of Yale just a couple weeks ago, trying to understand this phenomenon that in the United States, blacks are more likely to be suspended and expelled from preschool. Preschool, we're talking about. Preschool, what is happening in preschool? So what the researchers from Yale did, went to a conference of pre-K teachers, showed them 30-second videos of kids, told them they wanted them to look at the videos. All of the videos had four kids, black boy and, black boy and girl, white boy and girl, doing normal activities. And they told the teachers, sometimes being a good teacher involves seeing behavior going to be problematic before it becomes problematic. Some clips may or may not contain challenging behavior. None of the clips contain any challenging behavior. But it told them that. They then use eye tracking data to see what did the teachers focus on. And what they found were the teachers spent more time focusing on the black children in general, 
and especially on the black boys. So the teachers spotting more problems with black boys reflects the teachers extra focus on the black boys. This is the point I made faster than it takes to blink your eye is how these processes operate. The good news is we actually know a number of psychological strategies that can be used to help individuals overcome implicit bias. But the first key is to admit that this could be me. The person who says, I am not prejudiced and I know I don't stereotype, is the person who is perfectly set up to do it. <laughs> so the first step is to say, I am part of the human family. I am a normal human being. It could be me. This is a, a paper that describes a lot of the strategies. I usually talk about the divine solution. Professor Divine is a, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she has done a study where she has put together in that study a number of the strategies, stereotype replacement, counter-stereotype imaging, individuation. Let me give you an example of one strategy, individuation. We normally process complex cognitive information by putting things into categories. That's how all of us function. That's how we perceive our world. That's how we simplify all of the input we have to deal with. The problem is, nothing's wrong with putting things into categories. It's adaptive. It helps us deal with all the stress of all the things we've got to manage. If some of those categories, you have negative unconscious biases, you will relate to that category differently. Individuation means you learn, you make a conscious decision that I am now going to look at people, every person, as an individual as opposed to when I see you, I see middle-aged white male. I now, that's, that's my natural reaction. I now say I'm gonna consider this person as an individual. This internalized racism, I don't have time to talk about it, actually affects health. One of the things is, oh, let me tell you this. What percentage of Americans you think the research shows has imp negative implicit biases against blacks? Anybody? Someone said 90%. It's not, quite, it's not quite that bad. At least 70%. For 70 to 80%, every group, doctors, teachers, lawyers, whites, whatever group, with one exception. The only exception to the at least 70 to 80% rule is African Americans. Among African Americans, it's 30%. So even one in three African Americans have negative implicit biases against blacks. Because remember, it's not your skin color. It's what's in your mind. It's what, what messages you have received as a result of being raised in American society. What research indicates that these negative stereotypes actually affects African Americans' academic performance and their health. African Americans who believe the negative stereotypes of African Americans, their mental health is worse, and their academic performance is worse. All of these processes then lead to differences in income, education, occupational status, health in the United States, and then the inequalities in income and education, the fact that blacks are low in income and low in education, it then reinforces the stereotypes. Because you say, uh-huh, I was right. The stereotype is true. Because look, they are doing more poorly, and what we have is these stereotypes then reinforcing the racism in the first place and reinforcing the social inequalities in the first place. 
What do we need to do to dismantle institutional racism? We need to understand that racism in America is a system. What does that mean? It means there are multiple ways in which this racism has affected multiple domains of society. So here is racism. It affects the access to jobs, education, criminal justice, housing. All of these dimensions are affected by racism. And they're all connected. And what researchers are finding, they're all these parts where they reinforce each other and support each other. So if you just attack only one component of the system, there are other ways in which the system maintains itself. So how do you make progress? By a force that acts on every subsystem or by acting on key leverage points like residential segregation, like housing. And that's when I talk about purpose-built communities and what you do. So let me give you two examples of comprehensive approaches. One is starting early, the Carolina Abyssidarian Project that takes kids birth through five puts them in a good early learning environment, and, and purpose-built East Lake is doing that with, with young kids as well, quality preschool. And what the research finds, at their mid-30s, there are differences in their risk factors for heart disease. This is the kids birth through five who got the preschool program in their mid-30s. Their systolic blood pressure is 126. Those who didn't get the program is 145. A big difference evident in their mid-30s just by what you did in early childhood. And then also, when I think of comprehensive approaches, I think of purpose-built. And what I think, I, what I love about purpose-built is the fact that you are seeking to address, and I saw it in Eastlake, all of the challenges faced by the community simultaneously. You are not just focusing on housing, but on education, and access to jobs, and access to healthy foods. And this kind of comprehensive approach is exactly what it takes to be successful, not only in improving quality of life, but literally in improving health. So we, the other example I want to give you is that by reducing racial ethnic gaps in income, you actually improve health. We have good evidence for this. I want to show you this example. Between 1968 and 1978 is when we had the largest reduction of the black-white gap in income in the United States. Look what happened to the health gap. The health of, Af of white males, this is overall mortality decline. For African-American males, the decline is larger on an absolute basis, on a percentage basis. For women, the same is true. The health of white women improved. The health of African-American women improved even more rapidly. What happened after that? This is the black-white gap in income in 1978. You see the 59 cents. Throughout the decade of the 80s, it was even worse than that. Didn't get back up until 1994. And what happened during this time, the decade of the 80s, when the economic gap widened between blacks and whites? Follow me here. This is the life expectancy at birth for whites in 1984. It stays stable and slightly increases over time. From the 1984 level for five years in a row, the life expectancy of African Americans absolutely declined. Their health worsened from the 1984 level. What I'm saying is, when the economic gap widened, health worsens. When the economic gap narrows, health improves more rapidly. Very striking relationship. When we think of undoing racism in American society, I've showed you all the ways it affects health outcomes and other things. 
We need to think not only about opening the gates of opportunity. We need to ensure that people can walk through the gates. I want to illustrate that point by thinking of affirmative action programs for women and minorities in the 1960s, and I want to show how successful they were in the area of medicine. So in 1965, 6.9% of women graduating from medical schools in the United States, all medical schools, were female. 2010, 48%. Dramatic improvement. Almost half of medical graduates today are female. It's a result of the affirmative action programs implemented in the 1960s. For minorities, on the other hand, you can see African Americans and Latinos. This is where they were, less than around 3% in 1950 and 1960. In 2010, they're just 6 point something percent. We've not had as dramatic progress. Why? Because simply opening the doors of opportunity, if they haven't been educated to capitalize on the opportunity, you, you're not going to see the results. Just to illustrate, the challenge that still exists in the area of medicine. In 2014, there were 27 fewer African-American males in the first year of medical school than there were in 1978. This is a report from the American Association of Medical Colleges. In the mid-1960s, 2.9% of all practicing physicians were black. In 2012, 3.8% of all practicing physicians are black. We haven't made as much progress as most of my students think. And Thomas Jefferson's words are important in this context. There is nothing so unfair as the equal treatment of unequal people. There is nothing so unfair as the equal treatment of unequal people. What I'm saying today is that racism in its multiple forms is alive and well in the United States. I've given you many illustrations. Its most powerful effects are through institutional mechanisms, policies and procedures that operate. We need to acknowledge and understand it. We need to do double our efforts to dismantle its negative disease-causing effects. And I think the work you're doing is central to doing that in the United States. And importantly, we need to create political will and support to change the narrative and to dismantle um, all of these negative ills in our society. I leave you with two quotations from two of my favorite people. Martin Luther King said, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice that produces beggars needs restructuring. There's a lot of restructuring need to take place in the United States. And then Robert F. Kennedy says, each time a man or woman stands upon ideal, or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice, he or she sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And those ripples can build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. I honestly believe that purpose-built communities is a ripple of hope. And that all of you represent the best in our society to make progress on reducing inequality in this country. And it's my prayer that you will maximize your impact as a tiny ripple of hope to create opportunities for every child born in this country. Thank you very much. That was Dr. David Williams at the Purpose Built Communities Annual Conference in Birmingham, Alabama in 2016. Racism has real life consequences. 
It's not some kind of invisible force in the world, thoughts in a person's head, words said from one to another. Racism exacts a cost on people, Americans who have been historically discriminated against in our politics, our economy, and our culture. It shortens lives, and it makes the years that are lived more burdensome, with the physical and mental toll of illness alongside the financial costs of care. As we reflect on addressing structural racism and moving towards racial equity in our communities, how can you look through a health lens at the forces at play in your community? How do you see health intertwined with housing, with education, jobs, and the overall quality of life in your community? Dr. Williams made a very comprehensive case for how health is both a driver and a result of structural racism. And that can seem overwhelming to try to tackle in your work. But keeping health front and center in how you think about and approach revitalizing your neighborhood hits closer to the root of the problem. Acknowledging the social determinants of health is only the first step. How can you work upstream, not focusing just on the negative health outcomes in your neighborhood, but at what's really driving them to address the root of the problem? How do you treat the illness and not just the symptoms? Find helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at purposebuiltcommunities.org and connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Dr. David Williams for his work and for sharing it with us. In our next episode, we'll hear from Dr. Beverly Tatum, former president of Spelman College and a nationally recognized authority on race issues in our country. She'll share how institutional racism is built into and supported in America's classrooms. That most people have learned at an early age that you're not supposed to talk about race. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcast, where you'll find more information on the Purpose Built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy. Our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is community.